Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Erin O'Toole. It's Friday, May 6th. And today, we're going to look at how a recent rise in the pro-labor movement is playing out in one busy Starbucks store on Colfax Avenue in Denver. This coming Tuesday, employees there will learn the results of a vote on whether the store will unionize. Their effort is part of a recent and historic uptick in worker activism across the country, driven partly by the impact of working conditions throughout the COVID pandemic. There are around 50 Starbucks locations in the U.S. that have recently voted to unionize, including one in the town of Superior. That's the first in Colorado to do so. But pro-union employees at this particular Denver store say their efforts have resulted in backlash from the company. Nick Bolin is a freelance journalist based in Colorado. He wrote about what's been happening in an excellent in-depth piece that was published earlier this week in The Guardian. Nick, thanks so much for joining me today. Erin, thanks for having me on. Can you start with just a bit of a background about why employees at Starbucks might want to unionize? Not everyone is familiar with unions. I know there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about what it means to have union representation. Sure. So the workers that I talked to at the Starbucks in Denver had a couple main points. Starbucks has been historically known for you know having good benefits and, and good wages for service industry, front of house sort of gig. But, you know, they say that wages have, you know, not kind of kept up with inflation in recent years. They also are definitely motivated by some of the difficulties on service workers that resulted from the pandemic. They felt that the company wasn't protecting them when it came to uh, keeping them safe from the virus and also from, you know, belligerent customers. Several had horror stories about, you know, customers getting angry and at times violent about mask mandates and um, about uh, shortages in the store. They also cited a policy where you know Starbucks has just been raking in enormous profits in recent years, um, and they think that more of that should go to the people who make the coffee. They cited a policy that was proposed at the first Starbucks to unionize ever, which was December 2021 in Buffalo, New York, where if a worker misses a shift, the wages from that worker will be distributed to the other baristas who were working at the time, who were you know on a short staff shift, rather than going back into the you know corporate profits. So they, and, and, you know, the ability to many of the workers who I talked to who kind of weren't aware of unions before, when they realized kind of what the collective bargaining process entailed, and the ability to really push for the benefits and the protections that they want that aspect of autonomy, many of them brought that up as something that brought them around to supporting the the labor organizing. Okay, well, let's Back up, you mentioned that a Starbucks in Buffalo, New York, was the first one to successfully unionize. That led a handful of stores to want to try this here in Colorado. There's a location in Superior that um, actually did this recently. But you write the political climate isn't as friendly toward unions here in the state. Can you talk about that a little bit? I know you kind of traced a little bit of the state's history with unions around the turn of the 20th century. Sure. So Colorado's economy you know, 100 years ago was 
built around industries where, with really high union density, mainly mining, but it was, it was a really heavily unionized state at the time. And then after World War II, the state's economy became this kind of very dynamic pro-business, you know, innovation focused economy with aerospace and, you know, so much military spending, uh, especially on the, on the front range and, you know, investments in uh, financial services and, you know, these days tech and, and aerospace in Denver, none of those industries, you know, that's what gives Denver its, its booming economy, but none of those are exactly industries with high union density and mining hasn't really been much of an industry in Colorado since the 1920s and 30s. So for, you know, unions tend to be kind of these days associated with the Democratic Party and, you know, Colorado's trended that way in recent years, but compared to some other states that trend blue, you know, Colorado has a really low rate of unionized workers. Um, it's, it's several points below the national median. We're a modified right to work state, so it's not a full right to work which is seen as a, an, an anti-labor law, but it is the case that workers in unionized shops don't have to join the union. All of that kind of adds up to this, this culture, especially on the front range, which is where we're writing about, where you know it, it's not that it's maybe explicitly anti-union, but they're just people who grow up in Denver and go through their whole lives without really experiencing much when it comes to labor culture. Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting, aspect of the story because I spoke to some of the baristas in Starbucks, you know, some of them had moved to Denver from out of state. And when the first Starbucks in Buffalo unionized, they said, great, like, we want to, we want to take this on, we want to do this. And others were just like, what's a union? <laughs> right. And were really suspicious and hesitant. And some, you know, might not sign union cards, might not vote yes. And others had, you know, took weeks of kind of talking around, educating themselves as to what a union is, you know, wrestling over whether they wanted to sign a union card and risk being fired before ultimately coming around. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that it's the biggest, most interesting factor of, of the unionizing effort at the Starbucks on Colfax, but there's this, this kind of like extra variable of interest when it comes to labor in Colorado. Yeah, I mean, it really sets the stage for why this feels like a little more of an uphill battle than it might in other states, which are more union friendly or union familiar. Exactly. Now, you started following the effort to unionize at this Denver Starbucks several months ago. Tell us a bit about this particular store, which is on Colfax Avenue. It's known as The Barn. What, what is it like for employees working there? Well, the barn is, uh, first of all, it looks like a barn. Okay, I was uh, going to ask why, why. Why, why. Why locals call it that, yeah. And it is notable among the Denver Starbucks community as being very fast-paced. Um, inexperienced baristas tend not to start there. Compared to some of the suburban locations, um, it can be a little bit more you know, rough and tumble. Um, and they all said, you know, all the baristas I talked to said that, you know, Starbucks workers at other locations tend not to like pick up shifts at the barn um, because it has something of a reputation. So for example, one of the baristas I talked to was punched in the face by a um, angry customer who, uh, you know, is mad about the mask policy. 
there was this other incident where one of the baristas was pepper sprayed because they were out of frappuccinos one day. These are things that could happen at you know any Starbucks, but the barn has has a little bit of a reputation, which gets back to the issue of workplace protections and maybe why uh, the workers at the barn were especially inclined to um, announce a uh, a union drive pretty early on after the kind of national wave of Starbucks union began around the, the turn of the year a couple months ago. Right. Well, let's talk about what happened, you know, as soon as employees at the barn publicly announced their intent to unionize. Yeah, things started happening. That's that's exactly right. So following over the past three months, almost unanimous from the baristas, regardless of their opinion of the union, say that the treatment from management really did shift. In, in February, every member of the staff at that Starbucks uh, had a had a sit down with one of the management figures from you know kind of Denver corporate Starbucks, and they were asked kind of what they thought about the union, what they knew about the union push, how they intended to vote. There were noticeable uptick in kind of nitpicking from managers, like you know stuff like not wearing a name tag or like minor uniform violations that they said had never been an issue before. And then, you know, potentially more seriously, some of the more experienced baristas who perhaps, you know, coincidence were some of the leading union advocates were, you know, one case interrogated by a Starbucks corporate investigator and two other cases were written up one step below firing for violations that they say were you know, they, they had never been written up in multiple years of working at Starbucks across many stores and that for violations that they say didn't warrant that kind of, that gravity of punishment. And they suspect that this is anti-labor retaliation. There is a specific kind of lawsuit that you complaint that you can file with uh, the National Labor Relations Board, the, the federal labor regulator called a ULP, an unfair labor practice on behalf of workers alleging anti-union activity, four of these have been filed, at least four, they're actually potentially more coming, um, on behalf of workers at the barn at Starbucks with, with the NLRB. You know, the, the workers at the store went on strike in March, they had a six hour walkout. And, you know, after that, they say that, you know, scrutiny from management increased and there was a little bit more of a kind of confrontational aspect of times. So with a few, a few days, until the vote results are released on May 10th. The tensions can be, I think, are pretty high in that store right now. Yeah. I mean, what is it like for the baristas who are, are still coming to work at the bar? And this has to be kind of emotionally tough. Yeah. I mean, there are a number of employees who I talk to who, you know, they kind of don't really have a choice. The Starbucks is their main source of income. And uh, Starbucks offers benefits, you know, including health benefits, to part-time employees, which not every company does. If you work, I, I believe it's over 20 hours a week. And a lot of them, you know, kind of keep themselves above that 20 hour threshold to supplement income from other jobs in order to get benefits. So there is this aspect of necessity. You know, they, they say that it's been miserable at the barn for the past three months, but they kind of don't have a choice. They got to keep working. Mm. Well, just this month, the company's CEO, Howard Schultz, announced some new perks for Starbucks employees, including pay raises, but not at all stores. What's going on here? 
Right. So Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, you know, kind of longtime iconic CEO, came out of retirement shortly after the first Starbucks unionized in December and has been pretty vigorous in opposing the nationwide union push. And he recently announced that, yeah, Starbucks intends all of these benefit increases with like pretty significant pay raises. Starbucks doesn't have credit card tipping at the moment. You can only tip in the app or by cash. Uh, and they plan to roll out credit card tipping, which would be a huge income boost for these baristas. But the, the key variable here is that they said that they want to only apply these benefits to non-union stores. In the analysis, the, the analyses that I've read since this announcement, which was um, just a couple of days ago, it's not clear that this is legal. Um, this might violate federal discrimination laws and in good faith, um, you know, labor laws say that companies have to do that. Um, and this would be a clear incentive toward workers to oppose the, you know, that the, the incentive structure is pretty clear there. And the union has taken, you know, basically full credit for these benefit increases because, they, the, you know, the, the, the wave of Starbucks unionizing nationally has been enormously fast. I mean, I think they're catching up on 60 wins right now when there was zero in December. And I think close to 300 stores have active union campaigns. Uh, the momentum is definitely on the side of the union. So the union is saying we are, you know, th this, this isn't just from the goodwill of the company. This is because of the pressure we put on the corporation. And if you unionize, you can bargain for these benefits on your own. It won't be, you know, kind of arbitrarily given to you from on high. Um, and that also they, they intend to file charges against Starbucks, arguing that uh, these benefits have to, have to apply to every store, union or non-union. So yeah, the, uh, the fight continues. I, you know, there are thousands of Starbucks nationwide. We're kind of only at the beginning when it comes to the, the ongoing fight between the workers who want to unionize in the corporation. Yeah. I have to say, Nick, one thing that really jumped out at me is that Starbucks for a long time has had this public reputation as sort of one of the few companies that actually does care about its employees. They offer health benefits. They pay for college tuition. It is kind of hard to square this perception of, you know, a benevolent company with what's happening now to employees who want to unionize. Sure. And I, I think that that perception is pretty common. And, you know, there's there's evidence to that. That's like I said earlier, that's why baristas have sought out Starbucks, because they they offer health benefits when not all, you know, coffee shop jobs necessarily do. Uh, they have a very robust tuition aid program. And they also have this kind of corporate culture that encourages this kind of friendly atmosphere. Every employee from, you know, management executives on down to the lowest paid barista are referred to internally in the company as partners. And this is kind of goes along with the, you know, company culture they try to foster. But, you know, the, the, the workers say, you know, a couple things. One that just because their benefits doesn't mean they're always the best and they want them to be better. And they also, you know, say that it's up, you know, if they have a union, it will be up to them to push for the benefits they want rather than 
you know, the benefits coming down from on high from the company. You know, I think about one of the baristas at the Denver store uh, named Vanessa Castro, who I spoke to and has worked for Starbucks for four years at multiple stores around the country. She's getting a college degree from Arizona State with tuition aid from Starbucks. And she said to me, and this, this is a direct quote, you know, she kind of, she, she said, if you start to empower employees by giving them benefits, options, resources to get success, you don't get to choose when to stop. So she was basically saying, yes, like I'm grateful for Starbucks' benefits, but if we unionize, I will be able to have more autonomy over what I get to push for. I definitely think that this has been part of the tension between the workers and, and the corporation that they say, like, you know, you have this benevolent public image, but your union busting tactics have been often quite nasty. This is contradictory. That's that's a very common sentiment you get from the workers and, and from the union. Right. Well, what happens next? You mentioned the votes for the Denver store will be announced on Tuesday. What are people expecting the results will be? That's right. So uh, the ballots, their uh, mail ballots were, were mailed out um, a couple weeks ago in April. Um, the NLRB will announce the results on May 10th, which is Tuesday. You know, all my reporting suggests that, you know, the workers are pretty confident that they have a have a wide margin of, of majority support. And then once that happens, then, I mean, that's a big win, but it's also in some ways just kind of the beginning uh, because then they have to enter the collective bargaining agreement process. And, you know, by all, all expectations are that Starbucks is going to be very hard-nosed with the bargaining. Uh, you know, the fact that they're trying to pit unionized workers against non-unionized workers with the benefit increase for the for the non-labor stores, I think is evidence of how they intend to operate going forward. But, you know, the, uh, the Starbucks union, the National Starbucks Union is associated with one of the largest labor un- service worker unions in the country. So, you know, they have, you know, they, they have good lawyers. So they're certainly going to push back um, and I, I definitely get the sense from the workers in Denver that they are both, they're excited to just like have the vote happen and get this, this uncertain limbo period done with. But yeah, they're, they're definitely aware that once they're unionized, they have to go bargain and that might be equally exhausting. And lastly, Nick, can you give us a sense of where this effort at the Denver Starbucks fits into the national narrative around unionizing? This is a pretty, um, it's a pretty, I would say, historically important moment for labor activism in the U.S. in general. You know, last fall, there there was a kind of nationwide strike wave and pattern of walkouts and industry of all kinds. You know, Starbucks had been a target of, of union organizing for decades, and this is only a recent development that stores are unionizing around the country. Um, the first ever Amazon warehouse unionized just a couple weeks ago. So, you know, this is happening in a kind of pretty nationally important outpouring of, of labor activism and, and at times militancy. So, yeah, this is, this is not happening in a vacuum. Nick Bolin is a freelance journalist based in Colorado. His story, Pure Propaganda, Inside Starbucks Anti-Union Tactics, was published this week in The Guardian. You'll find a link in today's show notes and at KUNC.org. Nick, thanks so much for talking with me about this. Thank you, Erin.
and a few other things to be aware of as we head into the weekend. Former Colorado State University basketball star Becky Hammond made national news when she was hired as the NBA's first full-time coaching assistant. Now she'll make her head coaching debut Friday night with the WNBA's Las Vegas Aces. And if you're in search of something to do this weekend, a three-day event called Celebrate Colorado might help. More than 200 events are planned around the state to showcase Colorado's businesses, arts, and culture. The governor's office says it's a way to acknowledge residents for their resiliency throughout the pandemic. That's it for today on Colorado Edition. Our executive producer is Sean Corcoran. Digital is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Erin O'Toole. I'll be back next week with more news from around northern Colorado. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great weekend.